You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Today's scripture reading is Ecclesiastes 4, verses 4 to 16. And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful of tranquility than two handfuls of toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to his kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Thank you, Carol. Let's pray before we turn our attention to reflecting at length on this piece of scripture. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord, your church now asked by your Holy Spirit. We, your church, are listening. We need to hear your words. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2019, uh, in the February edition, The Atlantic ran a very important piece by a staff writer named Derek Thomas entitled, Workism is Making Americans Miserable. The subtitle was, For the College-Educated Elite, Work Has Morphed into a Religious Identity, Promising Transcendence and Community, But Failing to Deliver. This article was a fabulous article. I've read it multiple times, and I'm captivated by the assessment the author makes of our culture's approach to work. He's obviously writing for Americans, but I think much of what he assesses is very true, maybe even more true, in a city like Toronto. The article starts by tracing a trend from the 1930s on. Economists began predicting a declining work week and an extending weekend. They foresaw a day where employees would work two days a week and have a five-day weekend. And from the 1930s on, this uh, economic theory became more and more mainstream. In fact, by 1957, uh, New York Times was featuring pieces about how people's identity was about to change. You know, in the old age, names like Miller and Smith are all tied to trades that the family was associated with. But the authors were making the case, many uh, commentators are making the case, that people will now be known for their family uh, distinctives, they'll be known for the hobbies they choose to participate in. 
And the author uh, makes the case that some of these prophecies weren't completely untrue, especially for many labor work. Uh, the average work week since 1930 and 1950 has declined some 200 hours per year. But the writer makes this astute observation. The writer says this, Rich, university-educated people work more than they did a decade ago. They are reared from their teenage years to make their passion their career. And if they don't have a calling, they are told not to yield until they find one. The author's point is that work had transformed from something that produces materials, this world of material production to help with survival. It had morphed and changed into a source of finding one's identity. The author writes, for the college-educated elites, the university-educated elites, work morphed into a kind of religion, promising identity, transcendence, and community. The author calls what culture is experiencing a new religion. He calls it workism. We're looking at this wisdom book, the book of Ecclesiastes. It's attributed to a man called the preacher. And the preacher wants us to gain wisdom. He's this king of Israel who seems to at least come from Solomon's line, who's been granted great wisdom. And he's trying to pass on this wisdom to those who come after him. And he's on this quest to figure out how wisdom gives you advantages in this world. How do you get ahead? How do you uh, understand and know the right thing to do at life so that you can have a satisfied life? How do you know that you're winning? Well, this ancient book written thousands and thousands of years ago has told us that much of our quest is like chasing the wind. It's heavy. It's, it's an attempt to manage and uh, you know, rope in cats and herd cats. It's, it's not going to happen. But the author has made the case that there is something we ought to enjoy in this world. And one of the things he said repeatedly up to this point in the book is that there is nothing better than for us to enjoy the work that God has given to us. He said this in chapter 2, verse 24, and in chapter 3, verse 22. And I found it interesting, in a world who's trying to look to their vocation, their workplace, for their identity, this book reminds us that if you want to find your identity in your work, you will be frustrated. The author of, of the article we looked at from The Atlantic said, we are looking to our work for a sense of transcendence and community. That's how we are going to find our identity. And our work provides for us what we believe a new avenue for that. What's interesting in this passage, the preacher goes after both of those myths, that work can provide transcendence and that work can provide a deep and a meaningful community. And he confronts both of those myths in this passage. So those are the two things I want to look at. The myth that work can provide community for you and the myth that work can provide transcendence for you. So if work has become a new kind of religion, workism, as we were told in the Atlantic, it's becoming a religion because in part it promises you a new community, a new people to call your own. We'll call this the myth of community through work. And the preacher goes right after this myth. He starts in verses 4 through 6, and he says that work will not provide the community that you long for. Why? Because he acknowledges that often work puts us in a vicious cycle, a cycle of envy. Envy at what our neighbor has drives us to work harder so that we can advance above our neighbor. Envy at what our coworker has accomplished drives us to accomplish more. And the envy breeds more envy breeds more envy. This is what he says in verse 4. Then I saw all the toil and all the skill and work that comes from one's envy of one's neighbor. 
This is vanity, heveled, vapor, smoke, chasing, striving after the wind, right? As soon as you try to grab it, it's going to slip right through your fingers. Trying to find community through work is like chasing vapors. It's not just the capitalist economic theorists who say that the competitive drive for self-interest is the engine which drives the economy. The preacher gets that. There might be exceptions that prove the rule, but envy for neighbor drives so much of our modern economy. But so, uh, the preacher understands something else is going on deep underneath this. He realizes that there is this dark cycle in play. The more we see somebody have something we want, the more we want it. But eventually, for some, that cycle breaks. He talks about this in verse 5. The person who's sick of the rat race, the self-destructing behavior, and decides to, what Solomon says, fold his hands. This, for Solomon, is not a religious posture of piety. This is a mark of laziness. This is the, what is the preacher's point? His preacher's point is this, that work is not going to give you what you seek. You, you will not be able to find the type of community you long for through your work. Though enjoying work is a gift God gives, it won't provide for you the community you need. It's hard to make friends in such an envious culture. Though you'll make many contacts, LinkedIn connections at your workplace, it will be very hard to have a serious and deep committed friendship if envy is at the root of this. We all know that the rich are notorious for lacking friends. They might have people around them all the time, but they wonder, will they still be around if I lose my money? As a kid, I loved the movie, uh, one of Macaulay Culkin's movies, Richie Rich, which in a strange way was autobiographical for poor uh, Macaulay Culkin. But Richie Rich never understands if he actually has friends. The whole quest of the movie is to find out if these are true friends that he is starting to get to know. It's hard to be friends with the elite and super rich, but it's also hard to be friends with the super lazy, who are always in a cycle of blaming others. Ecclesiastes is saying, if you turn to your work and hope to get out of your labor a network, a friendship network that will get you through life, this is chasing wind. This is a waste of time. Labor drives envy. It alienates uh, ourselves and impoverishes ourselves from the very community we long to get. This alienation, no matter what the financial gain, is ultimately a net loss. Work or laziness, the writer, the preacher says, the only solution is to find contentment first in your work. What he calls a handful of quietness is better than two handfuls of toil and striving after wind. It might be half as successful as you long to be, but it's much better to be successful and content than striving after the wind. I'm convinced the preacher is thinking about community, or maybe we could say companionship, as the goal of labor as he now moves to verses 7 through 13. The preacher paints a very, very sad picture. The compulsive moneymaker who can never stop making money, but never asks what's the purpose of money? What's the use of money? Two are better than one. Three is better still. What is the goal of gaining wealth, laboring so hard to share in one's gains with another? This is the preacher's point. 
In fact, uh, the first advantage we, we are told, the first sort of leverage we can have over life, if you want to know some way in which you can have the good life in this world which feels so frustrating, the first hint that there is a way through the frustration is given in these verses where the preacher says, find community, find companionship. Two can keep warm in emergency. Three are even better. They can protect when you need protection. What is the preacher's conclusion? That work's purpose is for us to express love. And this shouldn't surprise those who would call themselves Christians. Our labors are acts of love towards the wider society, especially towards our close friends and companions. It's vapid to live a life trying to develop wealth uh, that can never be used and enjoyed with others. Trying to accumulate identity from your work, gaining wealth, and never experiencing the goal of all those things. That you would have a tight and rich community around you. Now let me stop and ask a blunt question. What are you working for? I think many of us are living and working for this identity of self. I think many of us are on a crash course towards retirement when our identity is removed from work and we don't know who we are. We don't know our place in society. Who will you be when you retire? Who will you be if you get laid off, God forbid it? What will you do if you have to change careers? What will you do if your business fails, if you find out the skills you've developed actually aren't that marketable anymore? The preacher is saying companionship, and yes, this verse is often read at marriages, of course, your spouse, but even more so, a wider network and community. Companionship is better than the most diversified portfolio. Life has a vaporous nature to it. It feels frustrating at every turn, but if you want an advantage over the frustration, find companions. This is the preacher's wisdom. This is plan for your professional development, plan for your retirement, plan for your vacations, but my goodness, spend twice as much time planning to maintain close friendships and companions. This includes proper investments in your marriage, sure. Your spouse doesn't care about your work reputation, but this also includes making friend networks that are wider than just your spouse. You need a friend or two. Let me ask, who are the six people in your life right now who would carry your coffin should something happen to you? Would you even have six close enough friends to carry the coffin? The preacher's point is this is a cruel world. There's injustice all over the place. It's a frustrating world. There's pain to be experienced. But listen, it's better to go through this world with two than in isolation. Three is even better. Find deep community. Prioritize it. Make time for it. Don't feel bad if you have a lunch with no agenda. Seek to be known. Next week, the cadre signups will open up. This is a great way to begin to find deeper community. So don't buy into this myth that work can provide for a status and reputation resume, which will then give us a deep and meaningful community. That is just not true. That is not the goal of work. That is not what work is after. But next, the preacher goes after this, the myth of transcendence. Don't buy into the myth that your work is going to make you transcendent. Now, I must admit... Verses 13 through 16 are incredibly complicated, and they're filled with obscurities, especially in Hebrew. Um, Patrick Mensner in our church, he's a PhD student in Old Testament at Wycliffe, gave me a paper to help me navigate uh, some of these difficult uh, obscurities. But the, the passage speaks of a poor and wise youth being a better ruler than a white-haired but foolish old king who won't take advice. 
Now, we, the story then moves, and we don't know exactly who the reference to the story is. In some ways, it sounds like maybe King David, or it sounds like Joseph, but it's probably an amalgamation of a variety of stories. But the young man in the story seems to have been born into poverty, but rises to the highest rank in a vast empire. But the point of the parable is this. Yes, it is better to have a young man who has access to wisdom, who listens to advice, than an old seasoned ruler who will not listen to advisors. But the point of the parable is this. The kingdom will not last forever. The king's work will eventually be forgotten. The passage about this, wisdom, has, wisdom does not have the ability to push beyond the limits even of political power. I think what the author is trying to say, if you hang with me, I think what he's trying to say is there is a desire in our work to transcend our temporal nature, to do something that will last for a long, long time. And the author is saying work is not going to provide that. In the Atlantic article I've been referring to, the author notes Gallup poll after Gallup poll, which says that millennials, despite being in incredible debt from student loans, uh, despite uh, you know being uh, sort of buried financially as they go to the workplace, they seek purpose over a paycheck, which the author sort of cynically points out is used by these tech elites to make so much money off their backs. But they long for purpose over paycheck. The author says that white-collar jobs often produce shapeless and invisible products, algorithms, consulting recommendations, statistical analysis for ads, etc. And the author says because no one can see the fruit of their work very clearly, they have to turn to things like LinkedIn and other social media platforms for a sense of transcendence. They need to manifest their accomplishments that they might be praised by the watching world. The article is saying that we long for transcendence in our work. We long to know our work matters, that it's going to last, that it'll make a difference. And though the preacher is referring to some sort of unknown story, he's referring to maybe someone whose work matters more than anyone else's at the time. The young king who rises from poverty up to the throne and rules over a vast empire. Yet even this young king should know, eventually he will grow old in age. He will lose touch and memory of what it was like to be uh, near the poor. He will eventually be rejected by a later group of people. Time and familiarity make us grow restless with any political leader. In a world that has a vaporous feel to it, a frustrating feel, we want something different. Our work, even if you're the king of the world, of a vast kingdom, won't provide the transcendence you long for. You'll know that one day you too will be replaced. We've seen this to be so true in our politically polarized age. In fact, uh, this is sort of the genius of our political system today. If you turn on almost any major news channel, what are you going to hear about? By and large, you'll hear some positive statements about any sort of political decision uh, that's made. But the majority of time, what are you going to hear? Criticism. Criticism of other countries' foreign policies. Criticism of the other parties' policies. But here's the truth of the matter. There is no political identity, no political theory that isn't eventually going to become boring and familiar. There is not a political movement that eventually you will begin to see their problems of it exposed. You will begin to hear the criticism. And if not you, your children or your grandchildren will seek to undo all the efforts you made to pass and advance your political approach. Contentment 
breeds a growing disappointment, which leads to distractions, which leads to a new party coming to the top. New saviors coming along, saving the day, criticizing the old generation, paving the way for the new. But today's savior will be tomorrow's enemy and foe. We rise, we fall, political movements change, but we don't receive the immortality we crave. The desire for transcendence creates a system is is a something inside of us that desires to be connected and long and longs to be united with something that's eternal. And this isn't a wrong desire. The goal isn't to say, "Ah, I'm not going to last anyway. I should just enjoy my life now and not worry about the future." That's that's not what the preacher's point is. His point is that if you are trying to find and tap into your work for that sense of transcendence, this is meaningless. This is hurting cats. This is frustrating. This is uh, shepherding the wind. It will not give you what you long for. There are benevolent corporations. There are good governments. Even church work has a lasting impact to it. But let's be honest. None of our work is going to last more than 200 years here on earth. Few of the institutions, I mean, that we build and the products we create are going to have the same value systems in 200 years if they happen to be around. We crave a job, we crave a vocation that tells us we are making a difference, but the reason depression and anxiety is at an all-time high is because we know deep down we're not. We know we're meant for so much more, and this frustration of the earth creates in us a craving, a craving for a, a, a glimpse of a work that lasts into eternity. We're craving deep companionship, as the preacher said earlier. And what is the solution? The solution is that, indeed, we are meant for a deeper companionship. We're craving a certain eternality to our work, a lasting impact. What's the solution? There's got to be a way to find that somewhere in our world. What is the story we come to celebrate every Sunday? Is it not the story of a person, the very Son of God, who existed in a perfect community, perfect harmony with the Father, the Son, or sorry, the Father and the Holy Spirit throughout all eternity. Did he not willingly come to earth? And what was his mission? That he might bring a group of friends back into a restored relationship with their creator, the God who made them. His goal, his mission was to restore true community to the earth by restoring a relationship between the human beings and their creator. How did he do it though? Did he not do it by coming to embrace loneliness? Was not solitude part of the work that God had for him? Was he not led to the cross with not a friend at his side? In fact, all of his friends betraying him. Was he not utterly alone on that cross? Did he not cry of his solitude? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's in the pain of this loneliness. It's in pushing through this isolation that the gates of heaven are flung open. Salvation's open to all, anyone who will listen. Everyone is welcomed into this relationship with God. New sisters, new brothers are created. But the gospel isn't just about a new community. It's also about a God who transcends time coming near and being with his people. God himself, who is not bound to time, taking on the limitations of time, experiencing a human body and all the frustration and difficulties that come with the human nature, experiencing toil on this earth. And on that cross did the one who had experienced nothing but transcendence 
taste death. This is a great mystery. But was not the ephemeral, temporal world defeated at that cross? Death received its death sting. And because of the work of Jesus, we are invited into a world that is unending, where we can know that our work, when united to Jesus, can have meaning and impact and transcendence because Jesus defeated death. So in conclusion, if on Monday, as you sit at your altar, your desk, and you start manicuring your LinkedIn account, you realize you are seeking from your work transcendence and community through the sacrifices and efforts you will make this week. Remember, these things are going to leave you empty. This is frustration. This is hevel. This is chasing the wind. Remember, Jesus has set you free from looking to your work for community and transcendence. He's provided for you a deeper community than your professional credentials could ever give. And in knowing Jesus, trusting that he came to give you victory over the frustrating world that you feel stuck in, it's only then that you can work with hope, with a smile, not be crushed by criticism, not be inflated by promotions. And then you can find true and deep happiness, deep advancement, serious advancement, and an ambitious age. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at christchurchtoronto.ca or email us at info at christchurchtoronto.ca.